to another edition of Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, where it's time for us to wave bitey bye to Captain Walker in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 98, which begins with Max seeing everyone else escaping in the air truck. And it ends with Auntie looking down at Max. With us once again is the Oztron himself, Brad Mull from the Lost World Minute. <laughs> Hi guys, how you going? It's hump day. We're halfway through the week. It's good day in my book there is nothing better than hump day oh yes there is friday (laughs) (laughs) speaking of hump day and having to worry about working for a paycheck you let me know before we started recording that you have a new job in a field that is tangentially related to this movie shortly after my silverton trip i found out i was the contracts were ending and i was out of work and got employed at a local piggery here which was funny because at the time you're starting off or getting well into Beyond Thunderdome and there's been a lot of questions come up over various minutes of uh, the pigs, the smell and it's sort of, it's funny now working at the piggery, scenes like uh, Master being lowered down into those pigs and being scared, he has every right to be, they will eat anything. (laughs) I've sit there in the yards and just waiting for the pen ahead to clear and they come up behind you and they just start eating the back of your gumboots and the back of your legs. Oh my god. Start chewing on your clothing, and like if if you slipped over, knocked or hit your head on concrete or something, and were unconscious, I reckon it'd be about five minutes before they started sucking on your fingers and starting to bite eat you. <laughs> it's quite scary. I feel validated in my fear of pigs. Even sort of being um, a lot of pigs because it goes through a million pigs a year. Stuff like their tails are cut short just so other pigs don't chew on them. There's metal detectors in the abattoirs itself because they chew on the fences and their surroundings and get slivers of metal in their tongues. And of course that can't go out to customers, but the fact that they're just eating <laughs> eating and chewing on their surroundings, yeah, it's quite, quite frightful. It really paints a different picture than what you hear in the behind-the-scenes made-for-TV special for the behind-the-scenes of Beyond Thunderdome where Tina Turner's talking about how sweet the pigs were and how full of personality they were. <laughs> And they are, like, yeah, they are full of personality and that, but just, yeah, when you turn your back, <laughs> make sure you're standing up and you can get away from them. And Master being load, lowered down into those pigs is a perfect example of that and just, I can just sense his fear <laughs> in that happening. But one other interesting thing too they've just started doing is methane production and they've started putting large black sort of tarp-like rubber material over the effluent dams and collecting methane and it's powering 25% of the uh, compound or the area at the moment, which I thought was interesting as well. No kidding. It's not attached to the back of an old 50s Mack truck and it's powered by a boiler, but yeah, it's it's rather a compact unit that just sits out beside these capture dams. I haven't had a chance to look into it anymore. I don't even know if I'm allowed to, but <laughs> yeah, just funny how back in 85 they were doing all this and now it's sort of being put into practice here. Not in the post-apocalypse, but yeah, everyday energy generation. It's nice to see something from a movie like this being put to use in reality. It's kind of satisfying, really. Well, you can see in a lot of innovation that nowadays where people have 
got ideas from earlier movies, obviously some of the bigger ones, mm-hmm. Back to the Future and stuff like that, where they're trying to recreate this stuff more so from the film than for practicality. But I'm sure I'm not the only one out there that has that jazz tune playing in their background when they're out walking through pig <laughs> <laughs> I just can't imagine being any sort of foreman or manager in that situation because all throughout the day the thing that would be rolling through my mind is oh man i wish i was riding someone piggyback barking out orders while dressed as a samurai (laughs) living a life yep (laughs) so as we join max here at the top of minute 98 he is lying face down in the dirt and he raises his head enough to see the plane flying over him. And it's not clear to me exactly what direction this plane is flying in. I'm going to assume they're flying east. Yeah, I think I would have to agree with you. For no other reason but that, you know, when you're looking at a map, when you're looking at a compass rose, east is to the right and west is to the left. Mm-hmm. And for where they end up at the end of the film, they'd they'd have to go east from this location anyway. It makes me wonder, they leave this area, and it's not specifically said in the movie where on the continent they're located, but for all intents and purposes, it's Cooper Petey. And so would Jedediah be the kind of person that would know where Sydney is located. He's old enough to have been alive and around and an adult before the world ended, but how would he know exactly how to get to Sydney? And more importantly, how would the kids communicate to him that they want to go to Sydney? Yeah, we don't see him look at any charts. There's no discussion here of where to go next. So maybe, as you said, sort of in the back of their minds, they know that the coast is east. They're a lot closer to that coast than what they are to any of the other coastlines in Australia. So I think Sydney was just a, a lucky fluke. Like they're just heading east to get to get to better get to a better area. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although once they come up on that dust cloud, it's probably not going <laughs> to be as uh, welcoming. But yeah, I can imagine that even if they do have a compass, some sort of tool to help them tell direction, that it would still be pretty tricky in like a sandstorm with a lot of particles flying through the air, generating a lot of static electricity, probably making it very difficult to navigate. That would be a little tricky to get where they need to go. Mm. Do you think perhaps Savannah's group, when they left the waiting ones, do you think perhaps they stole the pictures of the River of Light and Skyfish and that they are able to show those pictures to show their destination to Jedediah? Ooh. Whatever happened to that Viewmaster? Was it left behind? Well, there's still those waiting ones left back there. They left a lot of people behind, so... They did leave a lot of people behind, and I don't really picture Savannah as taking something from the tribe that they value very highly, almost religiously. Yeah. Mm. In the context of religion, it's an object that they worship. And to take that from them would be really quite cruel. So I can't imagine that she did. It's just one option that would work, that they would be able to tell Jedediah where they want to go. And if he knows where it is relative to where they are now, it's as simple as following a compass. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at a map of the continent right now. And from Cooper Pedy to Sydney, it's not a f- 
straight eastern shot. It's more of a east-southeast direction. Hmm. But you're going to fly past Adelaide. You're going to fly past Melbourne. If you draw a circle, you couldn't necessarily get to Tasmania. Well, maybe like the northwestern tip of Tasmania. You're not going to get all the way to Hobart. But they could go so many other places beside Sydney, but Sydney is internationally recognizable. Right. And the Viewmaster. Yeah, it's the city and the Viewmaster. The Viewmaster is the only reason to tie it back to that. Yeah. But they had their own names for it too. Even if Jedediah had been there before, he's not going to know what the sailfish and that their names for stuff they've seen. If Skyfish goes up into the cockpit and he's like, you got to take us to the River of Light and tomorrow Marland, he's going to be like... I have no idea what you guys are talking about. (laughs) (laughs) I think the only thing that would work is that there was at least one of those pictures that you could see the Sydney Opera House in. And that is an image known worldwide. Everybody knows where that building is located. Yeah. So if he saw that, he recognized what it was and where it's located, he could get there. But that would mean he'd have to know it. Yeah. He'd have to be well-traveled. And we're assuming that Jedediah was the kind of person before the general collapse of society who would know, oh, yeah, I know all about Sydney. I know all about those landmarks. That would be like assuming someone in, I'll say, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, would know exactly what Los Angeles looks like. I don't know what Los Angeles looks like. Exactly. Los Angeles is a huge city here in America. It is internationally renowned, but not everybody necessarily knows what all the landmarks look like. Yeah. I'll counter that. If you showed me the Hollywood sign, I would know exactly where that is. Yeah, that's a good point. There are landmarks in and near large cities where if you show me that landmark, I can tell you what city it's in. The Statue of Liberty, the Eiffel Tower, Things like that. And the Sydney Opera House is one of those places. Mm-hmm. But if you just showed me a picture of LA, I would absolutely have no idea that that's LA. I have to wonder. We learned from watching Captain Invincible during the hiatus that the Sydney Opera House hides a secret government facility <laughs> inside of it. Yes, And it I is. have to wonder in the world of Mad Max if that secret government facility invented by that dumb, dumb movie is there. <laughs> Why not? (laughs) Hey, I just learned a little while ago, and I feel a little foolish not realizing it before, but the Sydney Opera House isn't just one large auditorium. There are multiple smaller, different sizes of performance spaces inside there. Hmm. Which is something I didn't know all the time. I, too, was one of those people that saw the shape of that building and said, oh, yeah, it's just one giant hall inside. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Because I'd never looked at it that closely. Yeah. Well, I, I live here and I <laughs> didn't look at it that closely either. <laughs> so it's, there, it's, it's there. They do opera inside it. That's, that's about as much as I need to know about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so as the plane flies away, it's very conclusive. And speaking of things that are conclusive, we get a dramatic, not even a zoom. It's more of a handheld tracking shot moving underneath the wreck of Max's vehicle and Iron Bar's vehicle and we see an arm droop out and caress the face of Iron Bar's kabuki mask thing. (laughs) And then in one final act of defiance, that arm turns and the middle finger is extended showing the utter contempt that Iron Bar has for Max in his final moments. I love this so much. (laughs) And I think 
actually Ironbar stroking the mask, I think it's far more interesting to me than the flipping off. We have joked in the past that that mask is possessed in some way, that that mask is giving Ironbar the powers that he's using to stay alive through all of these injuries and calamities that he has experienced in this movie. And honestly, we're just joking. We don't think it's real. Iron Bar is just a normal human being. But <laughs> now the Iron Bar finally dies once that mask is separated from him. It's like they say, the sixth time is the charm. <laughs> <laughs> and the way that he strokes it, it was an object that he cared deeply for. For whatever reason, no idea why he wears this thing around. But the mask and Max are the last two things that he chooses to acknowledge before he dies. So I'm just very curious about Ironbar's history with this mask. Yeah. So I've been thinking about Ironbar lately. I was not a fan of Ironbar in the past, but his personality and the way he overcomes things charmed me earlier on in the movie. But now that we're here at the end, I have to wonder if Iron Bar is one of the reasons that fans look at this entry in the series with maybe a little bit more contempt than others, just because of Iron Bar's ridiculous longevity. Yeah, and like clearly here, the only reason he's dead this time is because it's the end of the film. There's a couple of his other <laughs> misadventures where he should have died more than this. Yes. Max's car took the roof or the whole top section of his car off. But the fact here that he's got the consciousness enough to be able to identify where his mask is and be able to caress it and then have the hindsight to know that Max is there and able to see him being flipped off. Mm. As we said last minute, exploding and jumping onto the front of that truck would be a lot more of a uh, death sentence. Even drowning in pig manure yeah, would um, probably send you down quicker than this crash but i'm thinking back on the different deaths that he's suffered deaths in quotations of course <laughs> this is a audio medium you can't see me making air quotes with my fingers but i can set aside the whole iron bar getting thrown off the penthouse catching himself and then climbing back up i'm cool with that i'm cool with him getting slapped by the feed chute and being thrown into the feces vat and then doing that apocalypse now rise out of the water hmm. <laughs> water that's a generous term <laughs> <laughs> But it's the blowing up that's just a bridge too far. I think that's the point where I'm like, okay, I can't say that this is the same vein of storytelling that we've seen in the past. Yeah, especially when it's revealed that he's laying down across that cow catcher where the point of impact would have been yeah. against that buggy. But, and being completely black as well. <laughs> that adds insult to injury. <laughs> I'm reminded of Goose. <laughs> now, Goose was in a different situation. He was involved in a wreck, he rolled over, and then he was set on fire to burn. And obviously, when they got him to the hospital, he was disfigured to the point where Max looked at him and said, Oh, that there, that's not the Goose. And he was right, because it was the old woman who played Mace Swayze done up in makeup, but that's beside the point. Iron Bar is not only engulfed by flames... But he's also sandwiched between two vehicles. He is essentially goosed and wezzed at the same time. <laughs> and he comes out just soot covered. Maybe that's when his tooth broke. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that works. That'd be the video to check because he's doing that. Ah, 
right on the front of it and would have his mouth open <laughs> as the train goes over the camera. So, yeah, <laughs> get a shot of those big pearly whites on a black body. Gosh. I think that might be the one thing that stands out to me as lore breaking, if that's a term we want to start throwing around. Things that are just flying in the face of the world that's been created in the previous two movies. I think the only the only reasonable explanation for Iron Bar and what he can do is if magic exists and that mask is magic. Mm. And I shouldn't scoff at the idea of magic because as we've said multiple times, Max identifies himself as a fairy princess and changes his face between two movies. So <laughs> game set match, magic exists. I wonder too if in previous minutes I'm sure you sort of talked about the the fact that there's two separate directors on this um, which is why you sort of we get these two separate stories with the waiting ones and that but I wonder if it's sort of Miller wanting to be dark and have these collisions and stuff like that Thunderdome and that and then having the other director sort of wanting to inject some lighter some lighter com- comedy and in that into it because hmm. it sort of reminds me a lot of Temple of Doom where you got <laughs> George Lucas wanting to go dark and Empire, then you've got Steven Spielberg, well, let's make this funny and have Capshaw in it. <laughs> this isn't as bad as that. Yeah. Not quite, but it sort of has that same feel. I could see that back and forth between Miller and Ogilvy. I also feel like it's a lot of studio interference. Yeah. The idea that Warner Brothers is hanging around saying, oh, it would be a shame if all of this money that we're giving you disappears. Let's make it PG-13. Let's not make it R. We were watching a movie the other day, and I can't remember what it was, but it was a Warner Brothers movie from about the same time. And it also had some goofy elements that seemed out of place. Gosh, now I can't remember what movie it was. It'll come to me. Probably in the middle of the night. Mm. But it did put me in mind of this movie and suspecting that it was studio interference who wanted something a bit lighter and a bit less grim. Yeah. It's a weird place where the air quotes franchise has gone. Where back then franchise films were considered, well, we're going to make another one and make more money on it. Um, whereas now you've got something like Disney or Lucasfilm where the franchise, or Lucas done it with the franchising of a film, merchandise, all that stuff. Whereas the Mad Max, I'll air quote, franchises doesn't really seem like that much of a franchise. There's no toys, there's no memorabilia, there's very little. And it's odd where they've sort of here, yes, they've got kids in the film, they're going to make a PG-13, but we had Robocop toys and Rambo toys and <laughs> all the stuff like that that's not geared to kids. And here you sort of, wanting the film to be geared towards kids and have these lighter moments in that where you're not doing anything outside the film to appeal to kids or younger people. A lot of the memorabilia, a lot of the models and the, you could argue, toys that I've seen for this series have been fan-made models. Yeah, model kits. Yep. Cobbled together from different pieces. Yep, just like the vehicles were in the films because, yeah, that's what you got to do. And I've seen some amazing models and just intricate and detailed work. I'm part of several Mad Max groups on Facebook and some of the things that these guys will post is just breathtaking in the scale and the detail that they put into it. It's breathtaking. I wish I could just airbrush. <laughs> just, just the, just the rust detail and like the, the aged look they give to. You can buy the XB coupe as a, a like a one thirty two scale model and stuff like that as, to have as your base car, but to damage it up and it's sort of one interesting thing going back to the making of Road Warrior to get the Interceptor looking 
that weathered and having the dirt sort of cling to the joints and that, they just covered it in diesel, diesel fuel and ran it up and down the main street a couple of times to get the dust to stick to it. <laughs> and it's just around those door edges and that where the diesel sort of lingered longer, you've got those heavier dust spots and it's just, you're obviously not going to dip a model car into diesel and then throw some red dirt on it. <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of talent there. And you see it with a lot of other franchises too, Star Wars, where people make their own ships and it's a skill I'd love to do. But <laughs> Yeah, the patience and skill involved with properly weathering something, not just giving it a black wash and wiping it clean and everything like that, but proper weathering. Oh, so cool. But even Lego, like Fury Road brought out a lot of custom, people doing custom war rig kits, uh, war rig stuff. And we've only seen recently that there's a sort of bit of an homage to the, I can't remember his name now, the Hearst. Oh, the Giga Horse. Giga Horse, that's the one. Yeah. yeah, just recently. We're recording this back in July. Sorry to break the illusion <laughs> once again. But just recently, they revealed a lot of information about the Lego sets for the second Lego movie. I think it's the Lego movie two, the second part. It's probably out by the time this airs. I'm not sure when it drops. <laughs> but one of the Lego sets is essentially just a Lego-fied version of the Giga Horse from Fury Road. And it looks awesome. Mm. And I'm absolutely going to buy it. Yep. And just, yeah, just something else making custom stuff out of lego we leave iron bar behind he is now officially dead and we rejoin max who after watching the plane fly away is just putting his face down into the dirt he needs to take a nap at this point it's been a very busy day and who should come to interrupt his nap but the black finger another guard there's a third guard with a crossbow in the back but then auntie comes as well Blackfinger is holding a 12-gauge high-standard model K100 Flight King shotgun with a sawed-off barrel. He racks the slide and nothing pops out the side, which means either he didn't have a shell in the chamber or that shotgun is empty. I'm more inclined to believe it's the second option. Same here. <laughs> There's something intimidating about the sound of a racking shotgun, so I can understand why they threw it in there. Yeah, it definitely gets his attention. <laughs> Slowly looks up. But the guy on the left side of the screen holding the modified M60 machine gun, he's got ammunition. So I wouldn't mouth off to that guy. Is that not the same guy that got hit in the face with the pan? I'm not sure because he still has his headdress. Yeah, and obviously that guy was pushed out of the car back at the other end of the airstrip. But I don't know if it's just a, they've reused the same actor here for this scene. Because his, his face looks very, very similar. It does. If he opened his mouth, we'd be able to see if he's got a missing tooth. Because <laughs> that guard actor, he had a missing tooth. Mm. Either he never had it in the first place, or they blackened it out to make it look like he lost it by getting hit in the face with a frying pan. Mm. But his weapon, just the absurd amount of barrels that are attached to it. Because <laughs> you've got the main, the main barrel in the middle, then you've got five smaller barrels sort of all cobbled together around it. It's an interesting style choice. It's overkill. <laughs> it's insane. If he had ammunition, it wouldn't last long. <laughs> it's not the type of gun that you personally aim at a single person. It's the type of gun that you aim at a general area intending yeah. to take out a lot of stuff. So walking up to Max like this and pointing the gun at him, this monstrosity, just feels ridiculous. <laughs> It's also something that doesn't really fit in the wasteland. It's all, we've seen, even back to Road Warrior, we've all seen it's all crossbow on that because ammunition is short. They're not 
there's not the bullet farm here. They're not making ammunition as far as we know. You're not going to power ammunition by methane as well. <laughs> yeah, that's why I think the shotgun's empty. And the main reason that we never saw this guard on the left fire that M60. Because they've only got so much ammunition. So they're not going to waste it on trying to just shoot a couple of people. Right, that's for crowd control. Right. <laughs> I think back to Road Warrior and how judicious humongous was with his very few shots and he used them not to kill people but to kill vehicles and in this instance this chase that m60 wouldn't do anything to stop the generator train because you can't blow out the tires there's so much complexity to that machine you probably wouldn't even know where to shoot to disable it so might as well just carry it around for intimidation intimidation yeah yeah speaking of intimidation Blackfinger in that shotgun. It strikes me that the shotgun is empty, most likely. Mm. This is the same trick that Max pulled on the gyro captain. Yeah. So pulling it on Max seems fruitless. <laughs> and frankly, both of the gestures seem fruitless because Max isn't going anywhere. Max is not posing an active threat. He is laying on the ground half conscious and just like coming to and realizing what is happening. You think he looks a little groggy? Yes, which is gratifying because I stand by the fact that he should have been severely injured or dead. More so than just like bruising a rib or something. Yeah, and he's got a dribble of blood going down his face, so he hits something. Probably a rock. Yeah. <laughs> he's definitely holding his side. Like Something hurt when he hit the ground. Mm. But in a minute, he does get up and walk without a limp as well. But even just having just having the guards there holding weapons is enough to sort of... He knows he's on the ground. Like, it's justification enough for Tina Turner to walk up or Auntie to walk up. She knows he's on the ground and harmless. So she's getting up close to him. He's not a threat at this stage. Yeah, Max knows not to try anything because he hasn't had his hands on a reliable, consistent weapon since the check window when he arrived in Bartertown. I'm not going to call his spatula a good, reliable weapon. It's a shiv. <laughs> well, it performed for him when he needed it to. Yeah. But he then doesn't still have that. Yeah, he doesn't <laughs> still have that. He does make a gesture where he reaches to his side. Which I would assume is, oh, something hurts, I'm going to hold on to it. Or do you think he's naturally reaching for something? That is the side of his body that his service revolver hung from in the first movie. Mm. Remember when we were complaining about him trying to reach for his sawed-off shotgun when all he had to do was reach over to his left side and pull his gun out of his holster? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it could just be muscle memory. Oh, I'm so dazed from jumping off that truck. Do I have my gun? No, it's been 18 years since I was a cop. <laughs> Old habits die hard is all I'm saying. Yeah, but even like we get a few shots too of his costume and you've got that big belt buckle or that big buckle that sort of holds his um, harness and that together around his belt. Mm -hmm. And I've always thought that maybe there could have been some sort of concealed weapon in that as well, just because it's so ridiculously big <laughs> yeah points when you see it but i've seen my fair share of belt buckles with hidden compartments and concealed knives and things like that and there are so many videos on those websites of buy our belt buckle because you'll always be armed and 
their demonstration videos of these guys that work for the company pulling out these blades and putting them away in one smooth motion and they're talking about being in a bar situation where someone steps to them and disrespects them and then boom they've got a knife and it's like first of all don't go around stabbing people just because your pride has been bruised that makes you a real jerk (laughs) yeah but i wouldn't be surprised if max had something concealed behind a giant belt buckle even if it's just something as dumb as like a throwing star but that's sort of the difference in characters between here and Road Warrior. In Road Warrior, you would have. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, just by him unloading all those guns at the check window, just, just shows it's not the same wasteland as what we knew in the last film. I'm still a little bothered by the fact that he left all of his weapons behind in that window. He never took a ticket. No ticket. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> See, that's how you know that Max never went to a fancy restaurant back when civilization was in full bloom. He and Jesse, they were living off that one cop income so they probably never went to the kind of place where you had to check your coat at the door and then you were given a ticket they probably never got valet service (laughs) that's how much of an everyman that max is i suppose he had the van i was just gonna say you imagine him pulling up to a valet in the interceptor i I, I don't know if the mfp would um allow that that would be a ferris bueller situation waiting to happen where those valets would be like oh we're not parking this oh yes (laughs) we're going out on the road Oh, so Auntie steps in between those guards and she brushes Blackfinger aside and here it is. It's time for no mercy. She said, for those that took him, meaning Master, no mercy. And the crowd was like, no mercy. And so here at the end, it's time for no mercy. And Auntie looks down at him and says, well, ain't we a pair? And I'm like, ain't we a what? (laughs) I want a no mercy moment from Auntie Entity. Mm. I want to see her in her full glory Again, we have seen her in her full power. I want her to do it again. I want her to be Auntie Entity. And she doesn't. There could exist in an alternative reality where I was a screenwriter in Australia in the 1980s. A version of this movie where this scene is happening and Auntie says, well, ain't we a pair raggedy man? And I know I'm hop skipping over into Friday a little bit, but they split the line. Not on purpose, but just for our misfortune, they split the line. Yeah. So she says, well, ain't we a pair raggedy man? And we cut from looking at Auntie to the waiting ones flying to Sydney. We cut straight to that sequence. And then at the end, when they're talking about, oh, we light the lights to keep, you know, a beacon for the people out there wandering. And then we don't see Max walking away. We just see his leather jacket lying in the dirt. We make it ambiguous as to whether or not Auntie shot him. Well, that would go back to the whole campfire theory as well. If the waiting ones are back there telling the story of Max... They wouldn't know what the outcome was once they flew away. They'd probably just assume he survived. Yeah. Because the last thing you want is for your Captain Walker, whether real or fake, the last thing you'd want for them is to be taken out by the quote-unquote bad guy. (laughs) Right, and as they're telling the story of their Captain Walker, I think they would return Max to being Captain Walker because he served the same purpose Mm. in the end. He got them to Tomorrow Morrowland. If they couldn't give him a happy ending, 
then they would give him an ambiguous ending mm. for the sake of storytelling. That's the only name they call him too. He doesn't actually correct him at any time in the crack of the earth to say, no, my name's Max. I don't believe. In Fury Road, is that really the first time he actually says, my name is Max, call me Max? There at the end? I yeah. think so. For all the rest of the movies... He's called nothing at all, well, or, of course, the first one. In this movie, he sarcastically says to Master, me, Max. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yep. And Master is with the waiting ones there, so that he would amend that story to say, well, his name was Max. But when Savannah's doing her end of the movie narration, she says, most of all, we members the man who finded us. <laughs> oh, that language. And that's how she refers to him. Yeah. <laughs> him that came the salvage. <laughs> I don't know if they necessarily have in their stories. Yes, his name was Max Rokotansky. He was an officer for the MFP. And <laughs> <laughs> he worked with Goose. He was assigned to the car along with the Dark One, although we never saw the Dark One. What's up with that? <laughs> I'm just glad he wasn't referred to as a road warrior in this because it wouldn't have fit. It would have made sense because he hasn't been driving much. <laughs> No. There's a severe lack of road mm. for these warriors to be fighting on. The runway warrior? The runway is the closest thing to an actual road that we get. It would be more appropriate to call this Mad Max the railroad warrior. <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. He spends so much time on different types of methods of transport. Planes, trains, and automobiles. And a horse, and on foot, and by litter. There's no type of transport that he favors in this movie. He just bounces from one to another to another. You can't say, oh, in this movie, he is a horse rider. He is a wanderer on foot. He just does everything. It's hard to label. Mm. I don't know if you could ever have Max as a rider, because then he'd be riding around on a horse. He'd be wearing all black. And then before you know it, he's chasing around four short people that are trying to drop jewelry into a volcano. And that's just a whole other movie series to begin with. <laughs> Yeah, there's no eagles. We haven't seen any birds in these films. <laughs> Apart from the crows. <laughs> I don't know if he'd be able to jump a crow's back. <laughs> I sometimes miss the crows. There were so many crows in that first movie, and they were such a shorthand for something nefarious is afoot. And you just, you don't get them in this movie. Because there's just not a lot of wildlife, because most of the time we're in the desert. Mm. It is what it is. <laughs> Speaking of wildlife, how long has it been since we've seen Sally Ann? Oh, she was left behind in Bartertown. She crawled out of that pipe and then that that's was it. That's right. That's right. Oh, that's sad. Well, we can at least hope that perhaps Sally Ann and Max got back together. That she went out into the desert once more and tracked him down? Well, we don't know where he goes or what he does after this. I still like to think that Sally Ann crawled out of that pipe and found a little street urchin boy named Al, and then they palled around, and then Sally Ann got a tiny little vest and a little fez, and they would, like, steal bread to survive. And then maybe that kid <laughs> would get recruited by some sort of court vizier to go into a cave and find a lamp, and then before you know it, it's Aladdin. Oh, Dr. Dealgood found a little manuscript with a cave hidden not too far away. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think Dr. Dealgood could become Jafar. I think he has it in him to be that nefarious and that evil. Yeah. Yeah. He's and the there's a theory that Aladdin is actually a post-apocalyptic movie. It absolutely fits. <laughs> 
how else would you explain all of the references that Robin Williams makes in that movie if they're supposed <laughs> to be in like a thousand AD? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they are in the desert. All right. Do we have anything else for this minute? So that pretty much brings us to the end of this minute. Like I said, Auntie's line, that famous line, well, ain't we a pair raggedy man, is foolishly split up because of how strictly we adhere to this format of movie by minute. So I will say that we'll pick up with this on Friday. We get to hear that second half of the super iconic line. We get to see where Max ends up. We rejoin the air truck. It's full steam ahead to the end of the movie, starting with Friday's minute. So come on back for that. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link join our patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link thank you for joining us for minute 98 of beyond thunderdome we'll see you next time Everybody!